If you have your Bibles, open them up, please. We're ready for 1 John chapter 3. And so um, we, we have been in this series, Friend of Jesus, for I think five weeks. This is week number six. And so we've been hammering this point. This, this topic of Friend of Jesus is something that I've been so passionate about as we started it. And I really felt like, you know, when we jumped out of the gate with this thing, this really hit hard because it was something that was near and dear to my heart and my life and, and something that I, that I could express and something that I've lived. When we first started this series, I'd been preparing for it for a while and, um, you know, studying and, and weeks in advance and months kind of contemplating where I was going to go with this. And um, the first week it came out, intro to First John. And my wife, you know, sometimes whether they're true or not to make me feel good, she says nice things about me. And my wife said, that was the best sermon I ever heard you preach. And then she even went on Facebook because she knows that it embarrasses me. And she wrote on Facebook, oh, I heard the best sermon I ever heard my husband preach today at church. And I said, well, thank you. But I noticed you said you didn't say it was the best sermon you've ever heard. You said it was the best sermon you've ever heard me preach. So there's some better. But anyways, super excited. And, and, and really, the as you guys know, Grandpa John, as we call him. The, the author of this, as we're going to get into in a second, he, he keeps his epistles very short. He writes in only 305 vocabulary words all the way through 1 John. And he's very redundant and very repetitive. And, and his theme is very simple. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And the love of God and this relationship with God. And John, old man John's message of um, communing and, and fellowshipping and knowing this Jesus that he knew and so we, we've really hammered this, I think, for like five weeks in a row. So we're going we're gonna to let you guys off the hook. We're going to finish uh, uh, chapter 3 this week, chapter 4 next week. We're going to go through chapter 5 next week. And then it'll put us eight weeks in this series. And we're going to start a new series in First Peter. And we just came out of Mark where we saw walking with Jesus, First John, friend of Jesus. And then we're going to get into First Peter. And, and we're going to find another uh, avenue where we're going to get to hear Peter's heart and, and Peter's message of being a disciple of Jesus. And so um, if you're new and you haven't heard all the last five weeks of intro and in this into first John and this book, basically um, the, the author is old man John, as we call him in this grandpa John. And Grandpa John was one of the youngest disciples when he was called. He was there. He was working for his father. He was mending nets, as you guys know. And Jesus came and Jesus simply said to him, follow me. And, and, and John and his brother James, they left the mending of the nets and they began to follow Jesus as a young man. Young man John was, was fiery and he, he, he eventually caught this, this fire and, and they went and they were preaching and Jesus was telling people and giving people the gospel and none of them received and they rejected Jesus. And John in his young age told Jesus, let's turn them all into crispy critters. Come on, Jesus, like Sodom and Gomorrah, let's rain down fire and brimstone from heaven and kill them all. And Jesus, in jest, names him Sons of Thunder and gives him this nickname that's going to stick throughout his life. And John was there and he walked with Jesus. And we see where John's life was radically redirected from the Sons of Thunder to Grandpa John where we catch him today. John walked with Jesus for three years. He was there at the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was there when, when the... Holy Spirit was poured out in the upper room at Pentecost. Then, then as we know, these, these 11 men Judas had left and hung himself. In, in a few years, God is going to replace Judas with Paul, the apostle. And, and these 12 men for the next 60 years are going to um, begin to start and do the ministry. They're going to begin to start churches and teach the gospel and raise up disciples and one by one, the other ten disciples are all murdered for their faith. And not a one of them recants. Not a one of them goes back on their story on their deathbed. Every one of them is faithful to the death. And the only one of the disciples who dies of old age is Grandpa John. And history tells us, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but the historian from that day tells a story of John who was going to be um, murdered as the other disciples were. And they took him and they dipped him in a vat of boiling oil. And they dipped him down into it and they pulled him out. And as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel and came out and their clothes didn't even smell of smoke, John came out of the, out of the, the oil and he's like... Whew, 
hey, what's up, guys? And they're like, oh, and they put him back in. And history says that when they when they tried to murder him and he came out of the vat of oil and he was he was not even smelling of of his clothes, that that they exiled him then to at the day was a prison island off of Greece called Patmos. It's there to this day. You can visit past Patmos when we take our tours of Israel. We if we do an extension to Greece, we'll go to Patmos and visit the place where John was. And while John was exiled on the island of Patmos, now later in his life, he's been walking with the Lord now for 60-something, 70 years. And he's sent into a prison colony, a prison island called Patmos. While he's in Patmos, as you guys know, the the Holy Spirit shows up, Jesus shows up, and he begins to give him a, a, a revelation. And then John pens, puts pen to paper, and he writes the book of Revelations. Revelations, Revelation. Now, now, Christians, you got to right? It's Revelation. You know, if you, if you say Revelations and some like self-righteous Christian, they're going to correct you. Like, it's Revelation. There's one Revelation, not Revelations. So get it right. We should know it. Church people, we should know that it's the revelation or the revealing of Jesus Christ. Only one revealing, one revelation. So John writes Revelations. Just kidding. I'll, I'll say it right, just for fun. John writes Revelation there on the island of Patmos. Jesus shows up. What the cool thing about the life of John is this guy had some pretty cool experiences walking with Jesus. At a certain point in the book of Revelation, John writes as an eyewitness. And the only way that John's an eyewitness, as, as, as God tells us in the word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is that God took John in the spirit to a time in the future. And he set him on the shore somewhere. He set him on the land somewhere. And he got to see the events of the end times unfolding in real life. That's why when we study certain portions of Revelation and, and, and the writings of John, we have to understand that he, he was writing about, um, maybe he was seeing airplanes. Maybe he was seeing nuclear weapons. Maybe he was seeing tanks and, 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 and machine guns and things that in his day were, were not even invented for thousands of years later. And so he describes them in these metaphoric ways as, as he's trying to understand it. But this amazing testimony in life of this guy that now we call Grandpa John. So after he's there, he's on the island of Patmos. He's lived out his life. He's served out his sentence. He's old and he's insignificant. And, and the government powers have changed. They bring him back off the island of Patmos to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is one of the places where the seven letters that Jesus addressed in Revelation 2 and 3... Um, that, that, that was one of the churches. It was one of the biggest flourishing churches of the first century. They had some really amazing pastors that had pastored stints there at the time. Paul was there for a while pastoring that church in emphasis. Timothy was there. And now old man or Grandpa John shows up. Now, now Grandpa John at this point in his life, like if there's one person that, that really is deep, really has like some theology that will blow you away and that'll go over your head. Somebody who could lay it down so heavy, like, you know, it just next level stuff. You know, one of the things that John was dealing with in that day was that group. And we talked about this, the Gnostics and, and this whole philosophy. Now the church had been growing and thriving for 60, 70 years. And there's this group of people that were saying, yeah, okay, we've heard the message of Jesus loves you. And we've heard the message of Jesus died and rose again. We hear that every week in church and we know that. And like, like we want something more. We want next level stuff. Like we, we really want to, we want to get deep and we want to experience something more. And so here we have grandpa John who comes back. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to share with the church in Ephesus. And these guys are probably real excited, right? Like, oh, here comes grandpa John. And, 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 and instead of blowing him away with some new theology, grandpa John is just simple message. He says, Hey, love one another. Jesus loves you. God loves you. Take that love and love across the aisles and love one another. And they're like, don't. And he just, just kept it really simple. And, and, and again, you know, Paul wasn't, John just keeps it so simple. Paul wasn't that way. You know, Paul lays down some stuff that's hard to understand. Even Peter in his epistle, who's Paul's buddy and, and fellow disciple, Peter tells you and me, he's like, yeah, I know. Sometimes Paul can be very hard to understand. He's confusing at times. Like Paul, Peter was feeling for some of the people that Paul was teaching because some of the things that he was writing were, you know, you got to have like egghead to understand some of this stuff. Like Paul's really deep. 
And, and so here comes John. And again, if there was one person that they were really going to respect, it's going to be John. And, and John gives this simple message to the church in Ephesus that's valid for you and me today. And it's just that love one another and that God loves you. And this friendship that John had with Jesus, he wants you to have. Amen? That's our seventh, sixth intro to First John. So um, let's pick it up in chapter 3 in verse 1. And it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. So, so John comes in and he starts with this word, behold. What does that say to you? How many of you guys like show up to like Thanksgiving party with your friends, your family? And you're like, behold, I am here. The party can start. Like I try it sometimes, you know, like I'll walk into the family room and I'll say, hey, I'm here. The party can start. And they go, oh, man, cousin, it's here. So, um. But, but we, it loses its kind of emphasis, right? But, but John here, he wants to tell you something like important. He wants your flags to go up. He wants us to lean in a little bit and pay attention. And so he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Do you guys know that Jesus loves you? Yeah? Not sure? Um, I think it's one of the probably the most rudimentary um, concepts in Christianity that Jesus loves you. You know, I, I, I seen this bumper sticker and it said some pagan guy and he said, Jesus, lo- uh, Jesus loves you, but everybody else thinks you're a jerk. <laughs> and that, that, that probably can be true sometimes, you know, but the, the world knows it. Um, Tim Tebow has made it popular in the NFL and you know, John three sixteen, God loves you. You hear people tell you all the time, God loves you. It can become um, very second nature, very, yeah, I know, I know God loves me. You know, it, if you guys were coming in this morning to church and I stood at the door and as you came in, I said to you, Jesus loves you. You know, I'd get so many different reactions out of you guys. Oh, I know he loves you too. Oh, I know, or, you know, or whatever, like all these different reactions to this simple thing. And here comes grandpa John chapter three. And he says, behold, now he took two chapters, one and two, to lay down some doctrine and and some some understanding and some direction. And then he gets right into, behold, what man, like pay attention, like let it sink in that God loves you. Now, now you guys know um, my testimony, so I I won't beat it up again, but it's so important to understand this idea. When I was in seventh and eighth grade, there was a kid in my neighborhood and he had a trampoline. Now, for you guys, you might not think that's totally rare and like, like cool, but you know, th- there was no trampolines in my neighborhood. Like there was no backyards in my neighborhood. Literally, my, my backyard out of my mom's, my mom's house bedroom was the back window. You opened my mom's back window and there was a walkway about this big and then an apartment building that started. And so there's apartment building behind us, there's apartment building on the side. I think there was like one trampoline in all of LA County. My friend had it. And so we, we naturally, we went to his house all the time. We hung out with him. We were like, that was like the coolest thing to do in our neighborhood was go to his house and jump on his trampoline. And his parents had this rule that if you spent the night at his house on Saturday night, you had to go to church with them on Sunday morning. So they were always inviting me. I don't know why, but they always wanted me to spend the night on Saturday night, you know, and they were like tricking me into going to church. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home, Christian family. But through that and through that relationship with his family in my neighborhood, um, I started going to a, a youth group on a Wednesday night and uh, went for all the wrong reasons and was just a terrible little punk kid that went and, and, and did all the fun stuff. They made it totally fun, but then you had to sit down and like do this Bible study. Well, they turned it into a competition. And so that, that's all it needed for me. I just wanted to win. I didn't care what it was. Like if, if I'm in it, I got to win it, you know? And so it was a Bible memory competition. And so I can remember not knowing Jesus, not growing up in a Christian home, but I understood the concept that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I knew John three sixteen. I knew it in my mind. When I was 20 years old, I, I asked Jesus into my heart and I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ and I became born again at 20 years old. And, and at 20 years old, through, through my born again experience, through the next six months of my life, I was in a ton of bondage to the world when I got saved. And, 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 and God took this information that, that Jesus loves me and he moved it from my head 18 inches to my heart. And that's oftentimes the distance between salvation, heaven and hell. 
uh, is the fact that Jesus loves you. Yeah, you know that in your mind, but not in your heart. And there's this process that I went through where, you know, I, I had, I had a, people that were setting the path before me in life. And they were all bad. And, and the direction that they were going and the people that were in front of me that I was watching, they, 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 were, they, they were just going down a road I didn't want to go down. And I didn't know the Lord. I didn't know. But I knew I didn't want to end up like that. And, and I, I get saved. I ask Jesus in my heart. And, and, and in my heart, I'm crying out and I'm trying to change. And I'm asking God to do something amazing in my life and just change me. And God's beginning this work in my life. And, um, and then I'm going through times where I'm just having great joy and experiencing Jesus and going to church and getting involved and hands raised. And then I just have this pitfall of, of just falling back into some sin that, that I had no business, you know, the old sin where I just went back and I just fell into this sin and I was just miserable and I was just, you know, my heart was still crying out and saying, Jesus, I want you to change me. But I had fallen into some nasty sin again. And, and I can remember God spoke to me three words that changed my life forever. And I, I would just be in a position where it was just like so broken. And I knew God was just going to do something terrible to me and I deserved it. And God would show up and God would say these three little words to me. What would he say? I love you. And it was so hard. It broke me so hard. I'm like, what, what do you mean you love me? Do you not know what I just did? It would be so much easier if God just showed up and just punched me in the eye. You know, I'm going to put some ice on my eye. I'd be good. I feel like my, you know, like I, I, just, I got it. I deserve it. I can go on with my life. And, and instead he would say, I love you. And what, what broke my heart was I didn't understand how God could love me. How God could love me where I was and who I was. And he would say, I love you. I love you. And it so radically motivated me to want to please him. It so radically motivated me to want to serve him and know him. You know, I didn't know the difference between the NIV and the New King James. I didn't know the difference between once saved, always saved, grace, mercy, fall away, all these sanctifications and, you know, all these long Christian doctrines and words. I didn't know any, any theology of angels and demons in heaven and hell. I knew one thing. I knew that Jesus loved me and I knew it in my heart and I experienced it. And God spoke it to me very clearly. Now, I could stand up here and I could tell you guys this message of Grandpa John. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And that doesn't come from me. That comes from the Holy Spirit to you this morning from Grandpa John to say, God loves you. Jesus loves you. But until, until God's Holy Spirit ministers that to your heart, until God takes that from your mind and does something experientially in your life to prove and show you and you put yourself in a position to receive that, that he loves you, it's not going to change. You know my biggest prayer for, for our church and for you guys since the day I got here? It's just been that, that God would speak that to your heart. That God would clearly say to you, I love you. And that you would experience Jesus the way that Grandpa John knows him. The way that I experienced him. The way that he led me through this love. The Bible says that it's the love of Jesus that constrains us. It's the love of Jesus, in other words, that compels us. That motivates us. And what happens in church and what happens among Christian circles and Christian people? We, we think it's the rules that compel, compel people. We think it's following the directions that compel people. Or it's the moral standard that compels people. And, and eventually, given to its end, right, we have these groups of so-called Christians who stand on street corners holding up signs that say, God hates fags. I promise you, Jesus wouldn't act that way. And, and, and yet... That, that's never going to compel anybody. That's not going to change anybody. That, that's, that's, it's the love of Christ. And so as Christians, we, we have to communicate this love. We have to, you know, first we have to receive it. And then and if we could just do what John is doing here. Listen, um, behold, pay attention. What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. If you only knew that the amount and the type and the manner of love that God has for you. It'll radically change your life. We could all go home right now. I'll just do the sign of the cross. Chuck, Chuck, Mandu. You guys can all go home. If we can get, don't, don't trip. You ain't going nowhere. I'm just kidding. If we could get that concept, right? And, and you know what? Again, it just, it take, takes abide and it takes some commitment and some devotion to, to just seeing and hearing that. And, and once this love of God begins to motivate us, you know, we don't want, we don't want to sin against God. 
We don't want to walk in those ways. I didn't want to walk in the world anymore. I didn't want to do those things anymore. Once I really was motivated by this love of God, it really began to change my life. He says, he says, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. I can remember I was standing right over there where Jason is standing and this wall was still here in this building. We just had half the building and we were just getting started. And um, I had my headphones on and we were painting or doing something, cleaning, getting ready. And um, this song came on, David Crowder. Um, he loves you like a hurricane. Is that it? And, and I can just remember that I just, God just gave me this amazing mental picture of his love that day. And, and I thought about that because I've been watching. Have you guys been following Hurricane Matthew? Yeah, canceled the Dodger game yesterday. Bummer, right? So I know there's bigger deals than the Dodger game. Don't take that the wrong way. But um, I, I saw some satellite pictures of Hurricane Matthew, and you you can just see, and the, you know those those storms they come off the west coast of Africa, and then as they get over the ocean, they gain momentum and, and they begin to spin, and you see the eye of the storm there, and this thing is almost covering the entire ocean from the west coast of Africa to Florida and our east coast. I mean, it's just ginormous and powerful. And as it's spinning and turning, as it comes on shore, and it it loses momentum as it comes on shore. But, you know, that, that song, He Loves You Like a Hurricane. I can just imagine myself being in that eye of that storm. And at that moment, I'm probably not thinking about what I'm going to have for lunch. Like most of you guys are already tuned in right now, right? What's for lunch? Where are we going for lunch? But you're probably not thinking about the fact that what time's the Dodger game on today? 11 o'clock. You're probably not thinking about anything other than what? That hurricane. And when Crowder says, God loves you like a hurricane, you just get this mental picture of just being in the middle of God's love. And it's just so powerful and so all-consuming and, and so changing of God's love for us in that hurricane. And then first part, I'm not going to preach verse 1 all day, I promise. Um, <clears throat> we should be called children of God. So really quickly, th- this is so powerful, you guys. Th- there's a concept, a biblical concept of adoption, that God has adopted you as his children. Now, it, it's pretty near and dear to my heart because I have a, a, a three-month-old daughter at my house that's, that we've adopted into our family. And, and there is a little bit something different and, and powerful about God's love in the fact that he has chosen you and adopted you. Because with an adopted kid, you, you choose them. You, you know, how many of you guys go to the, the pet store and you, you adopted a cat or a dog, right? And you looked in the little cage and there was like eight of them. And like, for whatever reason or whatever personality trait you're looking for, like you pick that one. Like the other seven you left in there, but you took that one home. You, you chose that one. With, with God, he, he, he chose you individually, each one of you. He adopted you. He had a choice. Like he saw you from before. He knows how you are. Crazy thing is he loves you anyways. And, and, and he chose you. You know, you know the thing about God's love and adoption. When, uh, when Lydia and I first got the call about the adoption that, that we're in right now, um, I wasn't home and Lydia took the phone call and it was, it was kind of random. You know, uh, there's a family in Idaho, Christian family, young girl. She was 17. She got pregnant. The boy was gone already. Kind of one night stand thing. She was about 12, 14 weeks along at the time, maybe 16 weeks along at the time we heard it. And, um, she had decided as a family that they were going to give the baby up for adoption and praise God for the courage of that young woman because so many other young women in her position terminate that pregnancy and, and, and murder that baby. And she made the hard choice and the difficult choice and yet the right choice of giving that baby up for adoption. And so they, they, they wanted to adopt it out of the state and somewhere it wouldn't be near them. And they had a Christian family friend they knew that lived out of state and they called them. And, and this middle party got this call and they said, hey, we're, we have this situation and we want to adopt this baby out. And um, do you know of a good Christian family that doesn't live in, in our state that would be willing to adopt this baby? And so they, they thought of us. And by the grace of God, and the mercy of God, Lydia got the call. And when Lydia first got the call, she told him, she said, well, I, I don't know how Chris is going to react. Because, um, you know, when her and I talk about adoption in the past, I always told her, I said, you know, I, I don't know that I could adopt 
I don't know if I could adopt. I just don't. I, I don't know that if I can't love an adopted baby like one of my own, I have no business adopting. And, and the reality is like, sorry if that's not like pastor enough for you or christian enough for you, but it's just the truth is that in my heart, I, I just knew, I knew how much I loved my own kids. And I knew that there was this, this bond that, that was so natural and so real and not phony and, and not manufactured with my own kids. And it's amazing. As you guys know, if you have kids, you have family, right? So many of us, we understand that love we just naturally feel for our children. And, and I, just, I just said, you know what, if I, if I can't have that same love, if I don't have that same love for an adopted child, which I don't know that I could, then I have no business adopting. And so when Lydia took the call at first, she said, you know, I don't know. I don't know how Chris feels about adoption, but I'll ask him. So I came home, and um, I can remember we were in my office, and, um, and, and she comes. She said, I got a call today, and, you know, you better sit down. I said, what? I could take anything standing on my feet. What do you got? And, and then she started to tell me, and I quickly sat down, you know, and um, immediately God's Holy Spirit just spoke to me, spoke to both of us. And I, I got emotional and began to, to weep a little bit as I, as I do when the wind blows the wrong direction. And, um, and, and, and I just said, yes, 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 let's do it. Let's, let's do it. And, and when we, we just had a social worker come and, and pay the last final visit to sign off for, the, for her to tell the state that we're we're, we're uh, worthy to adopt or have a baby in our house. And the whole process is a little nervy. But um, when, when she first came, I told her that story that I just told you guys about how I, I had told Lydia in the beginning, I wasn't sure if I could, if I should adopt, if I couldn't love a baby like my own. And so she had her notes and she pulls them out and she said, do you, so, you know, this is what you said. And, you know, how has it gone? Do you have you, do you love her like your own? And, you know, and, and it's amazing how, how quickly, and it was like, you know, it, I thought maybe it'd take six months, a year. I don't think it took like five minutes. And God just did this amazing thing. And, 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 and there's just this supernatural, this love for her. We don't, I don't know, you just don't think of her any different. You don't love her any different. You don't treat her any different. There's no like apostrophe or hyphen or asterisk by her or nothing. The, what's been amazing is how the boys have just completely loved her and they don't feel any kind of difference or jealousy or anything. You know, the other day we're all being, all the boys are in the living room and um, she was in her room and she was asleep. She was taking, and, and she started crying and, and two of the boys got up and like beat each other up fighting down the hallway to see which one would get to her first. You know, and I'm like, yes, yes. But that, that, you know, the, the love that, 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 this, that just, you know, God says, that's the type of love that I have for you. And, you know, check this out, which is so important and so powerful that, God says that he loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Now, I wear my mic on my ear, but if I had it in my hand, I'd drop it right now. God loves you. Listen, God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. What? But he he says, like, how could he adopt? How could he bring you into his family and not love you as one of his own? It's crazy to think that God has, has chosen and has adopted you and given you the same amount of love that he has for Jesus. Amen? Is that some crazy love or what? It's, it's, hard, it's hard to think that, that God loves us in that way. And, you know, e- even the idea, son of Barabbas, that God loves us as, as a Barabbas or as a, you know, that we're in the place of Barabbas, son of the father. And that we, we think of this story on the cross of Jesus dying on the cross with this thief next to him. And, and, and they cry out and, and, and Pontius Pilate says, which one do you want me to give to you? And they say, give me Barabbas. And you get this name Barabbas. The word Barabbas, bar, is a Hebrew word that means son. And Abba, you know what Abba means? Father, Abbas, father, son of the father. And we get, we get this, this picture that's us in the place of this thief on the cross as the son of the father and, and that Jesus dies as a substitute for us in our place. And then the Father looks and he, and he loves Barabbas. He loves Son of the Father. He loves you and me the same way that he loves his own Son. It, 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 it's, it's crazy. And John here says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has, blo- has loved us. In verse 2 it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. And we know that when he... 
is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Verse, let's do verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So we, we get this kind of theology, this kind of breakdown here. And John says that, that it's not yet been revealed what we are. But when he is revealed, who's he? Come on, y'all. Who's he? In church, let me give you a little clue in church. Like if, if when I was teaching Sunday school, I always tell the kids, if I ask a question, you're really not sure what the answer is. Just say Jesus. And it could be like, you know, it could be not a lot of times you're going to be right, you know. And so I was telling that story. Um, I was telling that story to adults and I was teasing them about Jesus being the answer to all the things. And and I asked some like off the wall question and the answer had nothing to do with Jesus. And Shane was sitting on the front row and he yelled out, Jesus. <laughs> so now whenever we see Shane, we always tell him Jesus. And he thought he was going to get it right, but he was wrong. So. All that, where are we at? Jesus. So it says that it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he, who's he? Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him. So when, when is Jesus revealed? When, when is Jesus um, unveiled? And, and so we, we know that, that the Bible says God is going to come for his church and that, that the dead in Christ will rise first and the rest of us who remain will be caught up in the clouds in the air to meet Jesus. We, we, we sometimes confuse this in our theology with the second coming. Technically, the second coming of Christ is not until the end of the seven-year tribulation period. But the rapture, where God comes for the church, he, he, he takes the bride up, is, is at the beginning of the seven-year period. But whether it's in the rapture, whether you, you, you don't know Jesus, you go through the tribulation, somehow you survive, you make it, you see him revealed in his second coming. Whether you, you breathe in right now, everybody take a deep breath. And before you can breathe it out, you breathe your last and you and you die, you are going to be transformed. Your soul, your spirit, who you are is going to be instantly, the Bible says, in, in an instant will be transformed. You will be changed in an instant. And so we, we know that, that we're not going to live in this flesh forever, right? Adam and Eve, those guys lived to be 800, 900 years old. And throughout human history, that numbers went down as this body just doesn't last that long anymore. And elements, and for whatever reason, God's grace, we don't have to be stuck in this thing for 800 years. Goodness gracious, that's some, that's, that's some bad thoughts, man. <laughs> totally not in the notes. I'm just My mind starts going to what it would be like. Terrible. For me, anyways. You guys all look wonderful. but I'm falling apart. So, w- this body, we only live to be 100 years old, right? That totally like, so at some point, God's going to give us a new body and the same body that Jesus had when he rose from the grave, right? Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. When Jesus came back, he appeared. It says at one time he appeared to 500. He appeared to him while they were in a room and he didn't open the door. He just went in through the walls, through the door, and he was in a new body, a glorified body. The same body that Jesus talks about in John 14 when he says that you will receive a mansion and that in my father's house are many mansions and a place and I will go and prepare a place for you. So we receive this new body and it says it's not yet revealed what we're going to be, but when we shall be like him. So the same body that Jesus came back in, God's going to give you one. And at that point, not only is there going to be a quickening of our flesh to our glorified, our new body, our eternal body, there's also going to be a quickening of our mind. There's also going to be just an understanding of who Jesus is. And it says that we're going to know him as we're known. How well does he know us? So there's going to be an intimacy with Jesus immediately, a quickening in that time, John says. And it says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so John wants this, you guys, to purify how you live. So if you live your life expecting that Jesus could come back, John just got done telling us at the end of chapter 2, that, that live your life in such a way that if Jesus appeared today, you wouldn't be embarrassed. You wouldn't be caught off guard. You wouldn't be ashamed at His coming. That, that you know, you'd want to be doing something that, that, that was for His glory. And, you know, you'd hate to catch Him watching you, hate to, for the Lord to come back and catch you watching a Raiders game. I mean, I don't know where you'd go. Just kidding. But, you know, 
he's going to appear. And, and when he appears, it says that, that if we have this desire, right, we have this belief that Jesus could come back at any moment, it changes how we live. It purifies us. It motivates us. You know, I read this, I read this thing to, so I don't know, I read this thing recently and it was seven reasons why Jesus or God can't come back today. And the first reason was blah, 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 lie, 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 junk. And the second reason was more blah, 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 nonsense. So, you know, and, and some people live that way. But the reality is if you don't live your life like Jesus could come back right now and you need to wait for these things to happen, you can live totally different. Well, I got some time. But, but the way that God designed it all the way through, do you know that the apostles, John and Paul and Peter, all believed that Jesus could come back in their lifetime? You know, the greats, when I say Charles Spurgeon and I say Chuck Smith and Billy Graham and D.L. Moody, hopefully some of these names ring a bell. These are the great preachers and, and, and teachers of the word and authors and um, evangelists of the last 200 years. Every one of these guys lived their lives as if Jesus could return today. Nothing else needs to happen. Nothing else needs to be fulfilled. And John says, when we have that hope, God designed it that way, that every generation would live with this expectancy and that it purifies how we live. Amen? For you guys, if, if you knew that, you know, if you're at home and you're a kid, you're a teenager... You may be doing something you, you know you're not supposed to be doing. Should I look at my teenager over there playing on his phone or something? No? Comb your hair this morning much? <laughs> All right. He took it off in church. Okay. So um, if he knows I'm coming home, like I'll be home like at 3 o'clock, like, right? It changes what he's going to do at 3 o'clock. And if he's there and it's, it's, it's 9 in the morning, he says, Dad's not going to be home till 3. I got some time. And the Lord doesn't want us to live our lives that way. He wants to live, us to live our lives knowing that, that he could come back at any moment. In verse 4, he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him, capital H, there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin, and whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. So John uses this word abide again. This word abide is used 112 times in the New Testament. John himself uses it 66 times in John and 1 John in this idea of continuing with, remaining with, spending time, having relationship, being personal and intimate on a daily, regular basis with Jesus. And it says if we abide in him, whoever abides in him does not sin. You wives are looking at your husbands like, what? <laughs> You husbands are looking at your wives like, what? So John here, and he's going to repeat this kind of same idea, that if we, if we abide, if we walk in Jesus, we don't sin. But look at verse 7, because he kind of breaks it down in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who, you guys with me? What does 7 does it say? He who practices righteousness is righteousness, just as he is righteous. So how many of you guys played sports now or growing up? A few of you? Maybe some of you guys are cheerleaders or, I don't know, you're on the water polo team or you. But you did something where you had to practice, right? What is practice? Practice is something where we go to, we continually, we, we take swings over and over and over again. We go every day and we practice and we prepare. So John is here saying that there, there's a difference between those of us as Christians who fall, who miss the mark, who sin in our lives, and, and those who practice habitual sin. And God makes a divide and a difference between the two. So sometimes, or not sometimes, all the time, right? We, we are going to sin at times. And John doesn't believe that, that if we walk in this, this perfect path with Jesus that we're never going to sin. That's not what he's saying. Because he's already told us in chapters 1 and 2 that if we do sin or when we sin, that, that, that we have an advocate with the Father and even so his Son, Jesus Christ, right? And John says that if, if, you'll, if you'll confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. So John's already painted this picture that as we walk with Jesus, we're going to sin, we're going to make mistakes, and when we do, we repent, we get right, we ask God for forgiveness. And so now here he can't be saying something contradictory that we're never going to sin. What he's talking about is a practice of sin. So I'm here to tell you this morning that if, if you live your life in such a way where you practice habitual sin, 
and you don't feel or know the con- or the conviction of the Holy Spirit who's calling you and drawing you home as a loving father, as a caring mother saying, hey, you're destroying your life. Stop. Come home. And there's not some feeling that, that what you're doing is displeasing the heart of your father. Then John says you, you can't play the role of the hypocrite. The two don't jive. You're not a child of God. There's no righteousness. And that you can't continually practice sin and, and say that you abide or, or abide in Jesus. It won't happen. There, there will be the Holy Spirit working in your life. And it just, we can't fake it. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Do you think John, old man John, Grandpa John, believed that there was a real literal devil? Yes, he mentions him several times here. Just coincidentally, Paul also believed there was a real devil, Peter, Jesus, and so we, we have a real enemy. And, and John just, just tells us that, that, that we're going to do the works in verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And so when we're, we're born of God and born again, we receive a new nature, right? Doesn't the Bible say that, that all things, behold, I make all things new? We, we have a sin nature, and, and we have to be born again. When we're born again in the Spirit, God gives us a new nature. He puts the nature of His Son in us. And, and, and we're still going to make mistakes, but we're never going to be comfortable living in habitual sin. And so, in verse 10, he says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For in this message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So, John is basically, Grandpa John is shooting straight. Grandpa John's not pulling any punches. And he's just telling the reality that, you know, in your life, if you claim to be a Christian, there's going to be proof of it in your life. And you can't go on and claim that that you're a Christian and, 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 and pretend to walk this life for so long that it's fake. The Bible tells us that, that we're, we're not to judge, right? Are you familiar with that verse? You have any friends that ever tell you, don't judge me? Right? You know, you, know if you, you know the number one tattoo saying, word saying? Number one tattoo, tattooed saying on skin in the world. <laughs> Somebody said it. Only God can judge me. Like, that... And for whatever reason, it's like nine times out of ten when you see them, they're like right here. Only God can judge me. Like, dude, that don't scare you? Like, God's going to judge you. And, and so it's always misused, right? You see somebody who's, who's in sin. You see somebody who's falling and you come and you say, hey, man. You know, and you try to lovingly correct them or lovingly encourage them that, hey, you're playing in the street. And if you, if you stay in the street, a car's going to come and run you over. And I'm just telling you, hey, watch out. There's a car coming. Oh, don't judge me. Dude, I'm not judging you. I'm trying to lovingly tell you that if you stay where you are, you're going to get run over. It's going to destroy your life. Well, you know, and and again, that verse is so misused. But actually what Jesus said, if you read it in context, he said, do not judge. And then in the very next verse, he says, judge. So when he says, do not judge, he says, do not judge with an unrighteous judgment. Do not judge in a condemning way. You're never to judge whether somebody's going to, hev- to heaven or hell. That's not your place. And the Bible says that as Christian people, we don't know. So don't judge. Don't judge whether somebody goes to heaven or hell. Because you don't know. You know, I used to say about Jerry Garcia. He ain't so gratefully dead anymore. Because I think I know where he went. But again, the Bible says don't judge. You don't know. You don't know that he didn't get his heart and life right with the Lord at the last minute. Right? But... Um, but there's a difference. I want to, now, I said all that to say this. There's a difference in Christian living between judging and what the Bible does give us a green light for. Well, first of all, Jesus did say, use righteous judgment. And then, and then he said that we're to be, as Christians, we're to be fruit inspectors. So we're not judging people, but we, we're going to use discernment in making decisions in our life. And that's godly. Now, if, if, if my, my son's 15 and... Um, it's going to be 15. It's going to be 15, January 6th. And if he comes home from school tomorrow and, and, and he's got one of his buddies with him and, and, and his buddy reeks of marijuana and his buddy's foul and cursing and got holes in his face and is just disrespectful and rude. 
I'm going to pull Luke aside, right? And, and somehow that kid's going to go away. And we're not going to see him again. And not that I'm judging him. Not that I'm not loving him. But I'm making a discernment judgment that I, I, I don't want my son to pick up the behaviors and the bad, uh, you know, from that. And so the discernment I make as a parent is, hey, that's, that's not somebody that we're going to put in our life as, as an everyday person, okay? It's not somebody that, that's a judgment, that's a discernment that's wise that God wants us to use. And, and we are to be fruit inspectors and be, and be judges. And in our lives as Christians, the Bible says when you abide in Christ and you have a righteousness that is genuine and real and is born out of devotion, here's what's going to happen. It's going to just be natural in your life and people are going to see it and they can't fake it. And they can try, but, but, but eventually the righteousness is going to wear out or the evil is going to wear out. And if you're one of those people who, and I don't know why, but they do exist somewhere. If you're one of those people where you're like, you really don't want that inward relationship and righteousness that's honest and real, but you want to like fit in at church and, and your neighbors to think that you're holy and godly. And, you know, so you come and, you know, you, you pretend your, your whole life. And, you know, what, what is your goal? Like you don't really have a real devotion, a real relationship, a real commitment to, to being a disciple of Jesus and a Christ follower and making other disciples. And then, and then you live your whole life in this fake kind of system. And then you die and you go to hell because you didn't really know Jesus and he didn't forgive your sins. And you're in hell. And what are you going to be like? Well, I'm in hell, but everybody thinks I'm in heaven. Like, what, what, is that your goal in life? Like, is that what you're going to achieve? Is, is so, why, why, why live that way? Why fake that? And John says, you can't really anyways because there's a... There's just a righteousness that people are going to see and, and it'll bear out in your life and you can't go on. You can't hate your brother and say you love God because those two are diametrically opposed. And, and God says, you, you, if, you, if you follow me and you know me and you have this friendship of Jesus that, that, that John had and that, that is welcomed and invited to you, there's going to be fruit in your life and it's going gonna, it's gonna to live itself out. You know, really quickly about abiding in Christ and about following Jesus. And the, the way that John said it in the last chapter was he said, if, if you love Jesus, you'll do what, what he commands. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll basically in a nutshell paraphrase, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Now, again, you guys aren't going to make many friends. If, if your friend comes and say, Hey, how are you? You guys want to be friends? Yeah. You can be my friend. If you do whatever I say, you're not going to have many friends that way. I tried to get a wife that way. I, I told Lydia when we first met, Hey, Listen, just do what I say and we won't have any problems. We'll have a good married life the rest of our, our lives. Just do what I say. And I'm still trying it. It's, it's still not working, but I still get black eyes every once in a while. But, um, I t- I, you know, but Jesus says to me, says to us, if you love me, you'll do what I command. You'll do what I say. Now, if what God commands is what's best for you, it's in love, right? It's in grace. And, and again, for our kids. Jesus gives the wisdom to our kids, and he basically tells our kids the same thing. He says, if you'll be obedient to your mother and father, it'll go well with you. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's repeated in the New Testament as a reminder that it's still valid for today for our kids. Because God says what parents are going to do for their kids is they're going to love them, and they're going to want what's best for them. And that we, you know, same thing for us. We're to do what Jesus says, but what he says and what he commands is for our good. And I promise you, Jesus is going to treat you much better than you've ever tra- treated yourself. He's going, to, he's going to spoil you more than you've ever spoiled yourself. He's going to love you more than you ever loved yourself. But, but if we love Jesus, we're naturally going to want to do what he commands. And when we find ourselves falling and sinning, John, John is saying that he gives us a provision. He makes a way for that. And it's not a matter of making a mistake as Christian people. We all do that. But it's a matter of where's your heart pointed. It's a matter of direction in your heart. And God is interested in your heart, not, not in, in so much our actions all the time. And then it goes on. It says in verse 13, let's jump down to 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Why? Because haters going to hate, hate, hate. Just kidding. I know, that's cheesy. That's cheesy. That's like the one accord joke. When all the apostles or the Lord told them to go in the upper room and, 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 and stay in one accord. And you're like, why did the Lord tell them to go get in a little Honda and hang out? It's, I know, bad. So just, just quick, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I do want to just make this understood. And 
unfortunately, you know what? We have lots of churches in our nation today. Lots of churches that we call seeker-friendly or feel-good churches. And, um, you know, some of them are like on the fence. And I watch the pastors. I listen to the message. And I, I can't really tell what I think, you know. But the, the, the way that they've been so successful is, is you come to church every week and everything is feel-good. Everything is you leave with this uplifting, Jesus loves you, God loves you, you're awesome message every week. You go out pumped up. They're never going to talk about um, sins. They're never going to talk about things that are controversial. They're never going to deal with the, the issues that just write through the word as they do. And, and unfortunately, it's not going to make you a healthy Christian. And if you want to become a disciple of Jesus and you want to be healthy in your walk, we have to deal with every aspect of the Word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, not skip anything, deal with the hard passages, tell you the truth, whether, you, whether you know, it makes you feel good or not, right? And, and, and John, just a little reminder here from Grandpa John. Check it out. People are going to hate you if you want to follow Christ. It's just a reality. Now, don't take that as, oh, well, good, because I'm going to hate them too. And we don't, we, you know, Jesus is not going to let us get away with that. He said to love your enemies, that we can't take this for uh, unnecessary roughness where we just return it. You know, he said that we have to love regardless. But the reality is if Jesus is in your life, you're going to receive rejection. If you want to live your life on your social media, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your family, and you just want everybody to love and agree with all your opinions, you, you, don't be a Christian because it's not going to happen. There, there, there's going to come people who are going to hate Jesus in you. Here's the, here's the blessing in it. Here's the cool thing. Is that the, the, Jesus said, the world don't hate you. The world hated me first. And that's why they hate you. There was a testimony. I, I showed it here and, and we watched it. It's called 23 Minutes in Hell. And, and in that, the, the guy has a vision. He's sleeping in his room and he has a vision of, of, of hell and what it's like in hell. And, and, and whether he was there or whether he just saw it or, or whatever, it's, 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 it's irregardless. It's irrelevant. But, but he gives this testimony, and in the vision of him in hell, there's two demons, and, and they have this, this vitriolic hate for him, and they're, 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 they're wanting to harm him, and they're doing him harm, and, and there's just this really just ugh, nasty hate that they have towards him. And, and at the end of the vision, the Lord shows up, and Jesus shows up, and one of the things he says to Jesus is he said, Jesus, why, why did they hate me so much? And Jesus said, they didn't hate you. They hate me. And because they hate me, they, they hate me in you. And it was so cool how Jesus just reflected the hate off of us. And, and, and he takes the blow for us. And he says, you don't have to be, have your feelings hurt. You don't have to, when people hate you and people revile you and treat you bad, it's okay. They, it's not because they hate you. You don't need to take it personal. They hate you because they hate me. And they hate me in you. And that's just the reality of walking with the Lord. Amen? That the haters are going to hate, hate, hate. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love the brethren, he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so again, we have this, this dichotomy that John draws between hating a brother and loving God. So if you, if you claim Christ follower, Christian, born again, there, there's no place in your life for hate and hating anyone or hating a brother. And it's something, again, that we have to deal with. And it, they just, they don't work. They don't coexist. You know, one of the, um, one of the things about walking with Jesus and, and the, trying to live this life of abiding and, and living in righteousness is, is what, what motivates us? What, what, what motivates us every day to do what Jesus wants us to do, to follow his commandments, to abide in him? You know, and, and for me, where I found my, my motivation was in this, this concept that Jesus loves me and God loves me. And as God loves me, that he's, um, you know, that I want to please him and I want to love him. There was a story of a girl who went out on a date and her date said, hey, I, I want to take you to the bar. Let's go to the bar and hang out. You want to go to the bar with me? And she said, no, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go to the bar. And he said, well, are you afraid of your father? Are you afraid your father's going to hurt you? And she said, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm actually afraid that I'm going to hurt him. And, and, and she didn't want to hurt his feelings. And she didn't want to break his heart. And so she, she didn't do that because she knew it would break the heart of her father. And that's, that's the relationship that Grandpa John talks about and describes here. You know, that, that where we, we, we don't want to break God's laws and his rules because he's going to strike us dead or strike us with lightning. Just because we, we have a, a communion and a connection with him that we don't want to break his heart. And not that God can't. 
take us out to the woodshed or spank us or discipline us because that's biblical and, and we see him doing that too. But it's that, that type of relationship. We're almost done. You guys hanging in there? Verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's pretty radical. I know we read over it. But if we let it sink in, Jesus laid down his life for you. And he calls you to lay down your life for the brethren. What does that mean? That means you got appointments tomorrow, but your brother needs help. You got, you got something in your way, but your brother needs help. And he says to lay down your life for the brethren. And to, you know, the Bible tells us another place that we should do good to all, but especially to those of the household of faith. And, and, and again, just this concept of radical and crazy love. And, and again, we, we, we love, you know, we think of loving. Um, we, we don't always make it practical, right? And right here. I often remind you guys to look across the aisles. Those are the people that you're to love. What if I asked you guys to look to, your, to somebody next to you and tell them you love them? Okay, now look to your second choice and, and, and tell them you love them. Like, it, it shouldn't be strange that, that, that we love one another. It's really the, the call, the mark of a Christian, and, and that we are to love across the aisles. We're to love one another. And, and John makes this, just this real connection. You know, it's like, we, we, we want to love in our community. Let's take Toilet Springs, you know. It's really important to me. I think as we come in, we worship God in several ways. Check this out. We, we sing songs. So we, we pray. So our worship is directed up and we're, we're, we're worshiping the Lord. Okay. I, I come up here and, 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 and I, and I teach the word because that's, that's one of the functions of worship is, is teaching and studying God's word. So we teach the word together. And so it goes out. We, we give, you guys respond. Uh, we give financially, we serve and we give this way. And, and so we, we have this, you know, and we love each other this way. We serve God. We worship God. We love God. But all those things have to be present in our loving and serving God. But it's important that we don't neglect practically loving those in our house, building relationships. You know, as Christians, we say, oh, we love the little children in Africa. Poor little orphans. We love them. And I'm not trying to belittle them. We, we just, as a little church, made a pretty big donation to an orphanage in Africa because we wanted to have a heart for the, for the children. And, and we, have a, we have a hand there and we have an in there and, and God's doing something really cool there. But, you know, this, this idea of, of, of portraying our love to Africa and these little orphan children that most of us will never see or have interaction with, it's easy to love them. But how about, how about your cousin? You know that cousin, right? That one you just pray doesn't show up to, to one of your events that you have to invite and you have to introduce him to your friends. Oh, this is my cousin it. You know, you just hope he doesn't say something or hope he doesn't embarrass you too bad and you have a hard time or he calls you and needs something or you have a neighbor that's, that's hard to love. And, you know, what about the practical love in our lives around us that surround us every day? And how are we going to love children in Africa if we can't love the guy that, that we work next to? The guy that, that works right above us or right below us that irritates us. You know, finding a way to practically lay our lives down and love the people that are in our circle first. And, and love our community. Love our neighbors. We should love Tooele. We should have a heart to share the gospel with Tooele. And, and that's one of the ways, right? Verse 16, John says, We know that we love because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? I, I, I shouldn't even unpack this because this is such a rabbit trail right now, and we're trying to wrap up. But um, it says, How does he who has the goods of this world and, and then sees somebody in need and doesn't meet that need and doesn't love that person, how, how does the love of Christ abide in you or abide in you when you have these material needs and, and we don't meet the needs of, of, of our neighbors? It's, it's inconsistent, right? So what do we do? Do we take everything we own and we go give it to the poor? How, how, how you know, there's not enough money in the world. We, we could do that, you know, we're still going to have the poor with us. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem. I don't know why I was in, I was getting ready this morning and opened my closet and I have, I have uh, recently organized my closet. It's not always organized, but I have all my pants and then I have my t-shirts and I have my collared shirts and my long sleeve shirts and um, the section of my pants, lots of jeans and 
very few slacks nowadays, but used to be all slacks. But I have this stack of jeans, and it's like this wide. I'm like, what in the world? How do I mass all this stuff? What do I need all these jeans for? I really don't. Just for a second, I felt really guilty. Like, I'm sure there was something better I could have been doing for that. And, you know, and I don't, I don't live my life in such a way that I feel guilty for the, or, or feel like, you know, I feel like God's blessed us. And I really do. In the United States, you know, there's those that would say, oh, well, you know, you, 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 you this, these people have all the goods of the world and, you know, there's all these needy people all around the world. And, you know, the reality is that, that God chose you. He adopted you. He blessed you in the country you live in. He blessed you financially. He wants to bless you. He wants to take care of you. And I, I didn't choose, you know, I guess I chose how many pants I'm going to buy. But again, I'm just saying, I, I, don't, I don't think that we have to live our lives in such a way that, that we, we have our head down all the time because there's children in Africa who are starving and we, and we have a, a pantry full of food. That's, that's not really God's intent. But when we recognize a need and, and, and somebody has an opportunity and something God and the Holy Spirit presents something on your heart that you discern and you use wisdom about, that you take what you have, you take your resources and you don't withhold them and you give them to God's glory and you give them to use the stuff. And again, we can't take everything we own all the time and give it to the poor. We'd have nothing left. We, we had a gentleman who showed up here at our church and, and I couldn't tell if he was drunk or just had done so many drugs that his brain was fried. And, and he came in. And he asked me for some prayer, and then he asked me for some money. And, and, and I, I have no cash here. The, the, um, and I said, the church, I have no, no ability to give you any cash from the church. I don't think he had ability to write a check. I said, but I, I will personally give you a couple bucks. I think I got a wallet. My wallet was in my wife's purse. And I told him I was going to give him a couple bucks. And I felt like God said, don't give that guy any money. I don't know why. There's been other times where I've had situations like that. I had a guy show up not that long ago and same kind of situation, a little bit different. And God told me, give him $400. I was like, no. And I did. I gave him $400. But, but God told me, don't give that guy any money. And I felt bad because I already told him, I said, hey, I'll give you some money. So a true story, God protected me because I didn't have my wallet. Lydia and the kids had already left. And I said, hey, I, I, I don't have any cash, man. I know I told you to give you a couple bucks, but I don't have any money to give you. I'll give you a ride anywhere you want to go. I'll take you wherever you want to go. And so I ended up driving him around town, dropped him off where he wanted to go. But in that situation, I felt like the Holy Spirit told me, don't give that guy any money. You guys know, we, we as churches, we get people all the time that come through and ask us for money multiple times a day. And some of those guys, they just call every church in town and they ask for money and they go and they do whatever kind of stuff. They have no desire to change. We're not helping them. We're enabling them to go and get high or whatever they're going to do. And then if you tell them no, they start cussing you out. Oh, I love that. I'm like, right on. I made the right decision on that one. But again, so I hope, I hope you're hearing my heart. There, there should be a desire among Christian people when God presents us and the Holy Spirit speaks to us to take these, these abundant goods that we have and give them to the poor and give them to needy and help people. And, and, and again, we have to be limited, right? Not, not a one of us has enough resources to meet all the needs of our community. But when God puts somebody in your path and, and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to you, be generous. Amen? Little quiz. You, your best friend in life. Do, do you want your best friend in life to be somebody who's generous or stingy? Somebody you're really close to. What would you choose? Generous or stingy? Generous? What about a boss? Would you want to work for a boss that's very generous or stingy? <laughs> what, what, what kind of, um, you know, people do you want to surround your life with? People that are really generous or really stingy? Now, every one of us say generous, generous, generous. We want a generous boss. We want a generous best friend. We want generous coworkers and friends. And so common sense says then we should be generous people. Those are the right kind of people. Those are the people we want to be. And that's what, um, you know, John, old man, John is telling us here. Last couple of verses. And in verse 18, he says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So that's the whole, you know, oh yeah, we love the children in Africa. Well, you love in tongue because what are you doing to help them? What are you doing to serve them? If God's put them on your heart, then, then go and do something. And for it is our heart 
For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have no confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandments. Let's stand. We'll have the worship team come up, close us with a song. In closing, last close, that's my fifth close, huh? It says, and this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And then we should love one another as he gave us commandment. And and so really, old man John, grandpa John, in all of his knowledge and all of his wisdom and all of his, his, his experience. Again, he just keeps his message super simple to us in chapter three, as well as chapter one and chapter two. Love God. Love people. Let, let there be a sincerity and a genuine um, experience of walking with Christ in your life. Don't let it be phony. God loves you and, and, and he just wants a sincerity. So walk with him. Walk it out. And then, and then he says to believe. You know, one of the things that we, we see over and over again in the scriptures is this idea that we're, God wants us just to believe in Jesus. So I want to pray for you guys today. Let's... Um, Let's close our eyes, if you would, just for convenience sake and um, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I want to just give everybody an opportunity. I'm just going to pray for you this morning, but I want to ask if there's anybody in here today, maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you and there's some things in your heart, some things in your life that are just not right with Jesus. And this morning, the Holy Spirit has been lovingly convicting you or calling you and you, you want to have an opportunity to get right with Jesus. I want to ask you just briefly to raise your hand, put it right back down again. Just a little something in that obedience of raising up your hand and saying, God, I want, I, I want to be prayed for today. I want to get right. So with every eye closed and every hand, every head bowed, if that's you, I just ask you to raise your hand up. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. That you want to say this morning, Jesus, I, 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 just, I want you to change me. I want you to touch me. Amen. God bless you guys. I want to pray for you this morning. And listen, if that was you that raised your hand, just, just agree with me in this prayer. And God will do it. There's no magic in what I say. There's no magic in the prayers. There's a magic in your heart right now that says, Jesus, I'm open. I'm surrendered. I want to, re- I want to ex- receive what you have for me this morning. So I want to just pray for you. And you just agree with me and receive this in Jesus' name. Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus. I thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. And Father, I pray for each one who raised their hand this morning. I, I-, I pray, Lord, that wh- wherever they are in their walk with you, Lord, if they are far from you, far off from you, or don't know you, Lord, if they are a child of God, adopted and brought in and are just not walking close with you and there's some areas of unrighteousness in their lives. Lord, we we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would wash us clean in the blood. We believe in Jesus. We ask you to come into our heart to be our Lord and Savior. We pray, Jesus, that you would draw us close to you into a friendship with you, of abiding and walking with you. And now I just want to pray for you. Lord, I I pray that you would bless each one that's come this morning, those that had their hands up and those that did not. Jesus, that you would bless our lives in Jesus' name, empower us, motivate us to to go and and make disciples and share the gospel. And Lord, that that our lives would just be consumed with this, this amazing, great love of Jesus. And so God, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.